Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Erica Slater, Megan Crow, Mary Simon, and Elizabeth McNulty. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. Hi. Today, our topic is directed verdicts. For those of you who do a lot of trial work, this is a tool that is utilized usually by defense attorneys at the close of the plaintiff's evidence and also at the close of all the evidence, where they ask the court to direct a verdict in their favor, arguing that the plaintiffs have not met their burden of proof on any one or multiple elements of that particular cause of action. So we have had some experience in this in the office just this week because Megan just tried a case and had the typical directed verdict filed against her at the end of her case and the end of all the evidence by the defense, but also used it affirmatively to try to get part of the verdict directed in her favor. So Megan, can you tell us about this? Yes. So usually, as Amy said, what happens is that the defendant will file a motion for directed verdict, basically asserting that the plaintiff did not prove all the elements of their case and that no reasonable minds could differ on that. In the trial that I just finished, we actually did an unusual plaintiff's motion for a directed verdict, basically asserting that we proved every element in our case necessary to establish liability, and there was no evidence to the contrary. And so what we did was asked for a directed verdict on the issue of liability. And so the only issue left to submit to the jury would be for the amount of damages. What was a little interesting in our case is that we actually had two clients, a husband and a wife, and the wife had one injury and the husband had two injuries, a arm injury and a leg injury. And the thumb injury to the wife was basically undisputed as to liability. So we moved for directed verdict um, on liability as to her claims. And then the only real issue in the case was that the defendants were disputing causation on one of the husband's injuries. They were only disputing causation as to his leg injury. And so we had moved for directed verdict. It basically came out to three different times, one for the wife's injury, one for the husband's arm injury, and one for the husband's leg injury. Okay. So it was a lot (laughs) of directed verdict motions going on. What ended up happening is that the judge granted our motion as to the wife's injury. And so the only issue to go to the jury was the amount of damages that her injury was worth. And we ran into, for this judge and and for the lawyers trying this case, it was an issue of first impression that we had essentially proved liability for the arm injury, but not the leg injury. So what ended up happening is the judge entered two separate directed verdicts as to the husband's injuries And it was liability for the arm injury and only negligence for the leg injury. And so the difference between the two is liability essentially equals negligence plus causation. So it was a little tricky in deciding how to submit that issue to the jury in the instructions. After a lot of research and 
discussion by the judge and the parties, we basically realized that the Missouri approved jury instructions did not contemplate for this. Interesting. So I know that you got a verdict. Congratulations for both your clients. Do you think this will be an issue on appeal? I don't think so, because what we ended up doing is the judge amended his ruling on the directed verdict and essentially just entered one directed verdict on negligence as to both of the husband's injuries. He agreed to do that, and the defense attorney agreed to not dispute liability on the arm injury to the jury. Okay. So the defense attorney wasn't going to argue causation of the arm injury? Correct. Because it was really clear that the arm was caused in the accident. Right. And then the knee injury was, there was a delay in treatment. Yes. So what ended Hmm. up happening is that the arm injury was really severe immediately upon impact in the collision. And our client treated for that right away extensively. And then a couple weeks after started treating his knee And the defendant's argument was that there was some unknown intervening cause in those few weeks that caused his knee injury. We had plenty of evidence. We had three treating experts that opined that the knee injury was related to the accident, and they had one expert witness that opined to the contrary and said it was not related to the accident. So there was a dispute of fact as to causation for the knee, which is the reason why liability directed verdict was defeated at that point. I'm curious still about this jury instruction issue. In Missouri, as most Missouri attorneys are used to, we have Missouri approved instructions. The Missouri Supreme Court says that if you use the approved instructions, they are appropriate to instruct the jury. It's not appealable if you use one of those approved instructions. But you can write a rogue (laughs) jury instruction. And if everyone agrees to the way it's written, you can use it and you can pretty much guarantee that it won't be appealable because all parties would have to agree. Was that considered at all for the odd way in which it looked like the judge might be kind of teeing up the case to instruct the jury? We considered everything. We had... uh, copious discussions about the way to do this. I had probably, by the end of the day, 16 different sets of jury instructions that we had contemplated. And one way we thought about doing it was having separate instructions for the arm and the knee injury, but that didn't really make sense because it's one claim for the personal injuries of a person. And so what ended up happening is that there are two different Missouri-approved jury instructions. One is 31.07a and one is 31.07b. And one is for when there's admitted negligence and one is for when there is admitted liability. And so we, for the wife's claim, which liability was established by the judge's ruling on our directed verdict, we used the jury instruction for admitted liability. For the husband's claims, we ended up using the other jury instruction for admitted negligence. The big difference between those two instructions being the corresponding verdict form. For the verdict form for admitted liability, there's no line to find for either the plaintiff or the defendant. There's just one line where you put the amount of money 
for the admitted negligence where causation is still an issue, there is a line for finding for the plaintiff or the defendant, as well as a line for the amount of damages. So we ended up doing that option for the husband's injuries. And the way that we accounted for this kind of conflicting issue of liability causation with the knee and the arm is that the defense attorney ended up actually putting this verdict form in front of the jury and telling them that they would find for the plaintiff in this case. And the only issue was the amount of damages. Because I know my biggest concern, which I raised with the judge in this jury instruction conference, was I don't want to put this line in front of the jury and give them even the option of being able to rule for the defendant. And the judge agreed that that was a concern, but we basically used our trust that they would follow what the defense attorney suggested to them in his closing argument. Were you holding your breath until the defense attorney actually like said to the jury, like, we believe you should put our client's name down here? I was, and I was even holding my breath until the jury came back because... As attorneys, we know that jury nullification is a thing, and sometimes juries will just do something that is not really considered by the law, and they'll just do whatever they want for whatever reason that they so feel in that moment. And so until we got that verdict form back with our client's name on that line, I was holding my breath a little bit. Well, it sounds like that was an unusual situation and pretty exciting. It was. With a good result. So congratulations on that result. One thing that comes up with directed verdicts is how to respond to them in the moment. As plaintiff's attorneys, we concentrate on putting our case together, and it's pretty impossible to file a response to a directed verdict because it happens so quickly. Basically, you rest your case as the plaintiff. We go first. We rest our case. And the first thing that happens next is the judge will ask for any motions, then the defendant will say, a move for a directed verdict. They typically have a cut and paste copy of a motion for a directed verdict ready to go. And I'm not being critical. That's just the timing of it. That's how it happens. The jury goes out and the judge will hear the argument. So there's no time to file any written response. And early in my career, the motion would be filed at the end of the plaintiff's case. I mean, that's the done. We're done with our case. There's very little opportunity unless you're really going to hit a home run with one of the defense experts or the defendant. There's very little opportunity to make a better case after you rest. So if the defendant is arguing, you know, you haven't proved your case, such as in a med mal or any tort case, liability, causation, and damages, If you haven't proved each of those elements with certainty by a preponderance of the evidence, then you're at risk. So you panic a little bit because you're like, did I ask all the right questions? Did I put all the right witnesses on? Did I actually establish what I need to establish? So early on, I would really kind of sweat it. And you would listen to the defense attorney say something And your mind's a jumble. And you're like, did I really forget to ask about liability? Did I forget to ask about causation? Luckily, the judge has paid attention and basically knows what he or she's going to do in response to the motion for directed verdict. But what I've learned as my career has proceeded is to be ready basically just to recite the evidence that I've put on. I'm not going to have time to file a written response, but it's on the record. And if I think there's any chance on earth that the judge is going to entertain this motion, 
then I need to make my record. So I typically don't just say, judge, I'm sure you've been listening to the evidence for the last three days. I say, judge, I had Dr. Jones on the stand and Dr. Jones pontificated within a reasonable medical certainty, blah, blah, blah. I had Mrs. Jones on the stand and she went into detail about her damages. I had, you know, a witness on the stand. I had this, I had that. And I try to list every witness who testified and a summary of every witness's testimony just to make sure in case for some reason the judge forgot that day or was distracted, just to be sure that that is not going to be a problem. And then if you survive the motion for a directed verdict at the end of the plaintiff's case, there's very little chance at the end of the, all the evidence it's going to be granted. I can't imagine. I mean, maybe I'm not being very creative right now, but I'm not sure how that would happen. Erica, you look like you might know. Well, <laughs> the good thing is I don't have an example of when this went wrong for us. But in those arguments often, although we can always anticipate them at the close of evidence, if there is actually an issue that um, has any teeth at all, it's usually been briefed on summary judgment before the court. True. Those are motions that... Usually by statute, you have three weeks, a month to respond to. The other side has a month to respond to. It's kind of a 90-day process to research and write about the legal issue that basically on the fly you're responding to in the middle of your case. If the judge has overruled that summary judgment motion, they have prior to trial said, I believe there is enough evidence here that if presented at trial would allow a juror to find in your favor. And so, you know, barring anything really crazy going on, you have likely put on the evidence that you intended to that the judge already found was enough to overcome the legal issue that the defendant is trying to direct on. Yes. And it occurred to me that it's possible if the defendant puts on evidence of an affirmative defense that somehow could defeat your claim, that might be a reason why a directed verdict at the end of all the evidence would turn out differently than just at the close of the plaintiff's evidence. But one thing that I probably and maybe all of us could probably learn from Megan is this idea of affirmative use of a directed verdict. Because I don't think I've ever done that, and yet each and every time I close my case, I am certain I have enough evidence that I should have a verdict directed in my favor. It's kind of aggressive, but I kind of like it. Well, I mean, you can certainly do that at the close of your case, but especially at the close of the defense's case, if there hasn't been any further evidence that would reduce or take away what you've put on. I don't know. What do you think about that? Our case, I think, was kind of unusual in that we did it at the end of our case instead of at the end of the defendant's case, because you think ordinarily you can only make that argument after hearing what the other side has to say. But in our case, we were able to do it at the close of our own case because we called the defendant ah. to the stand in our case in chief and he, on the stand, admitted to fault. So that was the reason that we were able to do it at the close of our case. And the judge, I guess, could have theoretically denied it at that point until he heard what the other side had to say. And then we could have renewed it and asked again for a directed verdict at the end of all the evidence. And at that point, the judge would have granted it. I think in this case, the judge knew what was coming down the pipeline and it wasn't really an issue of dispute by the defense attorney. And so 
we were able to do it at the close of the plaintiff's case. Megan, remind us of what is the legal standard for a directed verdict? Yes. So typically when it's done by a defendant, the legal standard governing the motion that they have to prove is that the plaintiff did not present a submissible case by offering evidence sufficient to support every element necessary for liability. And then so the reverse of that, when a plaintiff is bringing a motion for directed verdict, they have to prove that they offered evidence sufficient to support every element necessary for liability in their case, and there is no evidence to the contrary such that a reasonable mind could come to a different conclusion of fact. Got it. So that's where it comes in. Take a motor vehicle accident, for example. You put on your case, including calling the defendant adverse in your case, and you rest your case, and you know from the discovery thus far that there are no further witnesses and there's really no one who could show up to dispute what happened that day, it would be appropriate to file that motion for a directed verdict. Right. And so that's essentially what happened in this case. We had put on the defendant to establish liability, and we had three treating physicians who gave opinions as to causation. And so that was sufficient, like I said, for two out of the three injuries. And those were the two that the judge directed a verdict in our favor on liability for. In the defendant's case, they put on an expert physician who was disputing causation as to one of the injuries. And so that's after the end of that case is when the judge essentially revised his ruling on the directed verdict as to just the knee injury and essentially downgraded it from a finding of liability to just a finding of negligence because that fault was still established. It was just that element of causation that would technically still be for the jury to decide. Since it's usually a defense issue, I remember at least under Missouri law, and I'm sure this is very true in several other states, if you move for a directive verdict after the close of plaintiff's case and that is denied, there is some law out there that you have to renew that motion after the close of the defendant's case of your own case to preserve that issue for appeal. Because if you don't move for it at the close of all evidence, then the issue technically under the consideration of the judge is only based on one case in chief. So I remember that being a very particular practice point because I think somebody missed it. It sounds like somebody blew that sometime. One exactly. time and so never it was, again. Yeah. So it was like hammered into everyone's <laughs> head from there on out. Because they definitely stress that in any kind of like mock trial or trial ad class you take in law school. That, that would be my only experience on the defense side. But at least <laughs> she just flexed on you. No, I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. Hey, you know what? I came out of law school in a recession. My choices were limited. <laughs> from my experience with directed verdicts, they're pretty rare to get granted. Aside from Megan, does anyone else have experience with directed verdicts being granted ever? I had a case a number of years ago. I was trying it in Ohio, and it was a medical malpractice case. I had a number of allegations of negligence, and I had my expert on the stand, and I had ticked through probably three out of four. And I think, if I remember correctly, and y'all know my memory is terrible, but I recall when I prepped this expert that even though he had alluded to this negligence in his deposition, he just did not come through at trial. To have the testimony that Act 4 was negligent or below the standard of care. 
at the end of my case, the defense attorney rightfully pointed out that I had failed to present any evidence as to this act of negligence. And so directed verdict was awarded as to that area, that particular theory of liability. It still felt awful, I got to tell you. It still felt like a failure, even though I kind of anticipated it and I still got to go to the jury with other theories of liability, but it did kind of feel like a failure. But it was in Ohio, and I don't think I've ever told anybody about that. No one knew about it because I was hiding away in Ohio. So I finally come clean, I think, 10 years after it happened. So I feel like I can admit it now. (laughs) (laughs) 10 years later. Right. Breaking news. (laughs) That brings up another good point. If you're on the plaintiff's side, like we were arguing an affirmative directed verdict on liability, we found it was important to set out the facts for specific theories of negligence that we would have submitted basically per the MAI. So essentially the approved jury instructions in Missouri lay out various theories of negligence in motor vehicle cases, such as, you know, failing to yield, failure to take evasive action, failure to do whatever, this and that. Those are set out specifically. And so whichever ones we would have submitted on, if we were to submit on a full instruction on on negligence, that's how we tailored our motion for directed verdict. Like we set out the facts of one of them was a failure to yield. And so we set out the specific facts for that and asked for in our directed verdict that negligence be found on that particular theory. And that ended up being pretty important later down the road in the jury instruction conference. You know, based on my recent trial experience, in that case at least, you spend a lot of time asking the judge if you can just make a record. Because anyone who has tried cases or gone through an appeal process or you're even reading, you know, appellate cases all the time to rely on, you think, man, I don't want, you know, an appellate court saying it wasn't clear from the record, something that all the attorneys understood as the situation and the judge understands is the situation in the case. But if it doesn't show up in part of the record that the court reporter is taking, then you can't argue to the appellate court later, hey, judge, this is how things went down. And that panel, they're all going to say, well, uh, we didn't find that in the record. So much time is spent doing things like that to make sure your record's clear on appeal. Well, thank you, ladies, for an interesting discussion on directed verdicts. I really appreciate it. I hope our listeners do as well. And thank you again for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Please listen and download to our episodes every Wednesday. If you have comments, please send them to heelsinthecourtroom.law. And we'll see you next time. Subscribe to Heels in the Courtroom now. And check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out podcast from nationally recognized attorney John Simon offers insights and mentorship to attorneys who want to stay at the top of their game. Check it out. Check it out.